Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye.、Uh, it is September 27th, and Tammy and I are recording this on the 25th. And this time, it is actually quite relevant because some of the stuff that we're talking about is fast moving, and things might change, details might change, but we're actually working very hard to frame it in a way where those things aren't going to be quite so relevant.、Um, As always, if you'd like to support the show, it's five dollars a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com/ttsgpod. Tammy, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I've been、um, binging the last season of a show I really love on Netflix called Sex Education. Have you seen it? No, what's that? <laughs> it's about a sort of mythical, like very woke high school slash early college in England. Oh wow. Um, and it's just like a very cute and interesting show. Julian Anderson is one of the stars. If you were an X Files fan, oh yeah, oh, wow, and she's amazing to watch. And anyway, but、um, yeah, it's actually kind of like it, I feel like it's interesting for our listeners because it both does sort of like a critique of overly woke stuff among Gen Z, but also sort of indulges like its best intentions. Oh, so it's kids. Like it's kids. It's like teenagers. Exactly. She is a sex therapist. Is the conceit of the show, and her son becomes a sex therapist for his schoolmates.、Oh. It's very cute. Yeah. And is she like single and life is on the rocks and she's going through? <laughs> You're reading at all the sitcom trips? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it goes up and down for her, but yeah, without spoiling it too much. Yeah, in in season four, she is single and on a new adventure in life. Season four? How many seasons、mm-hmm. of the show are there? Well, this is running in. This show is now running into the problem of like Stranger Things and other shows like that, where the kids look too old. Oh, yeah. You know, so、yeah. now they're in their first year of college, and it's like getting a little bit tired. Yeah, which Millie, is why I think this is the last season. Millie Bobby Brown, I think, is nineteen now or something. Did you see people <laughs> making fun of the first line? She like wrote a novel, I guess, and then. Some very mean people online、Dude. were making fun of her writing, and I was like, I don't know. She's like a nineteen-year-old who <laughs> is a movie star, and she took the time to write a、I、novel. Oh wow, it's kind of、yeah. nice, you know. Even people are like, oh, it's ghostwritten.、And、I was like, first of all, I don't think a ghostwriter would write these sentences. But secondly, <laughs> I kind of doubt it. You know, I bet she just went on vacation and wrote a novel, and you know, like, whoa, she has connections to publishers, other people. Like, who cares? Well, you know? of course she does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. But also. Yeah, it's fine. I would much rather have Millie Bobby Brown be interested in writing fiction than not be interested in writing fiction. You know, yeah, it's, it's a nice thing. It's better than having her own line of like skin cream or thongs. Exactly, or leave her alone. Is my point. <laughs> She's、leave、trying to do、alone. literature, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's like when Jewel wrote a book of poetry. Do you remember this? Oh, Jewel,、like, that was really was terrible. Like, really, it terrible. was like the most.、Uh, it's like I think it's still the highest selling book of poetry ever, or something. No. Yeah, or one of I don't know what else it would be. Outpaced like, by Rupi Kaur, whatever. <laughs> I know, I know. That's another one where I'm just like, leave her alone. You know, like it's fine. Just leave her alone.、Eh. You know, it's fine. <laughs> I'll defend po- Jewel more. I think <laughs>、uh, poetry is like one of those things where I just feel like if anybody has taken the time to do it, that they should be applauded. You know, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're not doing it for any ulterior motives. That's for right,、sure. right. I mean, Ruby Cow probably is a very sincere person. Like the idea、I、that mean, somebody would、sincere. turn themselves <laughs> into like a gigantic, have a, this cynical plan to become a massive social media influencer 
by being a poet? Like, no, you know, <laughs> if anything, even if that was a plan, it's such a bad idea that you have to like, like the person for pursuing <laughs> such a stupid idea. the accidental hustle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. like, Listen, I think you did this cynically, but I sort of respect how bad of an idea this was and how you still kind of put it together. It's like, there's something to admire there. Yeah. Um, Rupi Kaur, um, she's fine. I don't I mean, know. I don't have strong feelings about it. I mean, I think it's bad. I think it's schlocky. I don't know that it's poetry. I think those are like the debates that are had around what she Do you produces, have like a strong Amanda Gorman take? That's another I mean, person yes, who takes definitely. way too much. I, I believe takes way too much crap. Um, unclear. Let it I mean, go. yes, a, she's extremely young. You can't get canceled for saying stuff on a podcast. <laughs> so what's, what's the deal? I mean, I think... That poetry is really terrible, but, you know, she's not responsible for being elevated in that way. And like, it makes sense that she would take advantage of all of the things that come out of being the, inaug- you know, an inauguration poet. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I feel like it's, I mean, I really love poetry and it's important to me. So I feel like. Well, I who's good then if all these people like are bad, poetry. right? Like who, who's a good modern young poet that we can recommend to the listeners i don't um, have any opinions on poetry you don't read poetry right well i do but like you know like i don't i don't know i think i it's like one of those things where i know what i like and i know what i don't like yeah but i mostly am just kind of like i have very conventional ideas of what's good and what's bad you know gotcha yeah like john berriman is great you know but like <laughs> well, that doesn't say anything right everyone thinks john Berryman's well great. okay so maybe that there's a poet called, I don't know, I mean, she's not in her 20s, but a poet called Mai Dervang, who's mm-hmm. a Hmong poet, um, who might be of interest to our listeners. I think she's really awesome. Okay. And Mai writes Der in Vong. a very cool and modern yeah. way. And- I like, uh, let's see, what are those? Oh, well, my interest is in the form is mostly just, you know, Buddhist in origin or Taoist oh, or yeah. whatever. And yeah, so yeah. imagistic kind of stuff. Even the Westerners who got into it, like Gary Snyder or whatever. He's great. I'm into all that stuff, you know? <laughs> Anything that's nature and is very simple, I'm kind of into. I like that too. I even like, you know, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but even like Ezra Pound's Cathay interpretations of those, like they're very good poems, you know? And yeah. um, I don't know. Say what you will about appropriation and then Ezra Pound's own personal issues. But like those are quite... Those are quite good, I think, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I kind of strike the politics out of it with it, where I'm just like, this is a very good Western rendition of what these, of of not exactly what these poets were trying to do, but it, it's like something on its own that's interesting. But yeah, I don't know if I could say that about Amanda Gorman, but then I also just think like maybe that's not the intention of it, you know? Like this is like mass mass market type of stuff exactly i think that's i think that's like a a good analysis because there are different uses of poetry right Right. in different contexts in which you want to pull a wedding poem or whatever a toast poem right or like like sort of a stirring i believe in multi-ethnic yeah america post trump (laughs) and then having this person write read this poem in the striking yellow dress if nothing else, it was a very powerful image, I think, at the time, you know, yeah. and we can like sort of deconstruct it now. But at the time, I remember being quite moved, even though I wasn't really listening to the poem, <laughs> or it was just like it the seemed, images were well. Right. It was, conceived. and maybe that's the point of it, right? Like maybe, maybe. it is. Yeah. Well, maybe. no, that's definitely the point. But I, yeah, I mean, then there's this question of like, 
how does a text like that exist as a text, as poetry? Like, on, does, can it have a life of its own outside of that ceremonial context? Hmm. Yeah. But maybe that doesn't matter. I mean, I think that's a question that matters to people who are practicing that genre. I'm sure they have strong feelings about it. But also, she's a kid and whatever. It's fine. She's very young. <laughs> yeah. I do not have strong feelings about it, but I generally am like, okay, with things just existing in a performance space without having to be sure textually analyzed by people who like are like super into like kind of like impossible to read poems by like lucy brock broido or something like that you know or (laughs) um i'm impressed by those types of poems but like it's like doing a wordle or something like that for me (laughs) it's like a puzzle Anyway, those are not the time-specific things that we wanted to talk about on this show. You know, in fact, we want to talk about the strike. Strike season is upon us. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but Tammy, <laughs> as our resident labor expert, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. And we're going to just talk about all this. So There's a for lot. those, uh, I'll just introduce them very quickly by saying, you know, like the UAW strike, right? The United Auto Workers strike is continuing. And um, last night, the news came down from the WGA and from AMTMP that uh, the writer's strike is effectively over. And the one thing that we don't know right now is all the details of everything that's in that agreement, right? And we've heard a lot details. of rumors. <laughs> we've seen a lot of jokes, you know, but uh, we don't want to sort of cloud with speculation of what might be in there because it might not be true in two days, right? But um, which one do you yeah. want to talk about first? Um. Let's start with the Writers Guild, since that's the freshest. And I mean, the thing is, we don't have a ton of information, as you said, but um, the Writers Guild has put out a letter to its members that sort of sums up where folks are in negotiations with negotiations with the AMPTP, which is like representing all the studios. Um, I So I think it seems like the two big things are they were very worried about AI. Right. And the last place they left it was that they wanted constant contact about different developments in AI and the studios said, we'll meet with you once a year to have a conversation about it. So that was like a huge gulf. But also I think as Max explained to us when he was on the show, maybe more symbolic politics, we are not quite sure. Um, well, and then minimums, the size of the yeah, rooms. rooms. Yeah. And then the streaming rooms. residuals was the and other streaming big residuals, thing. Right? That's residuals, right, yeah. A system where writers could get residuals for streaming in the totally. same way that they used to get them for television. Have you watched any of these yeah. TikToks of TV writers opening up their mail? No. And they just like oh, go for their royalty the residual statements? checks. Yeah. It's not just What writers, are you like seeing? Because as our TikTok from, expert. You know, Rufio from Hook like the leader of the Lost Boys. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He does it from time to time and all of his act. It's it's entertaining. What is it? What what It's all like people opening checks for like 19 cents and stuff like that. Yeah, But obviously for real TV hit residual, you know, like that's way more money than that, right? Like these people are just sort of doing it as a joke. But yeah. Yeah. Um, No, but it is a huge issue. Um, I guess I, I mean, I feel like the studio, like in the, the Writers Guild has been like very over the course of these almost 150 days of striking, I think admirably open about the conversations that they've been having with the studios to the extent that they were having conversations at all, because basically for most of the strike, they weren't at the table. Right. Um, But in the last back and forth I was seeing, I mean, there were, I think a lot of things to be concerned about. They seemed very, very far apart. Um, I think the residuals thing is fascinating because 
you could be on a show as popular as I don't know, I'll just insert whatever. Like this doesn't really make sense because it's Korean. But if you like if you're on Squid Game, like basically you make you don't actually know how popular your show is, right? right. You don't get compensated in proportion to that, which seems completely outrageous. Um, of course, the streaming companies, I guess, would say that there isn't a kind of proportionality in terms of ad sales like they do ha- they had on yeah. linear TV. Um, yeah, I'm curious what you think about the main sticking points and in your conversations with writers, like what they're saying to you, because you've kind of been in this business a little bit. Yeah, I don't know about the details of what it was agreed to, but I do know that the minimums was like a big deal, right? Um, because And the reason why was because people felt that with streaming the move that people are trying to do is find somebody, convince them that they're the genius and have them write the whole show. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in the way that I don't know, like maybe they would have thought like years ago, they would have taken somebody like Vince Gilligan and right. said, you don't need a room. You know, like you can just do this all yourself. Do you yeah. really want these hacks diluting what you're doing? And then a real concern from, I think a labor standpoint about, you know, what's called pillow stuffing, I think, isn't that what it's mm-hmm. right? And the idea that there would be all these no show type of jobs, similar to like the Sopranos, you know, where they show up and they just kind of are on the, you know, like it's a no show job. Yeah. They don't actually have something to do um, if that happened. But, you know, obviously those types of stories are told by management as a way to discourage having to have a guaranteed number of spots in a room. Yeah. And um, if there was progress on that, which I imagine that WGA wouldn't have agreed to this if there wasn't some concession from, you know, the studios. Yeah. uh, I think that's a great thing. You know, it just means more people have work. And for the lone geniuses who don't want to employ anyone, then, you know, what's the harm? Right. Just give people a research project or something like that and let them get paid. (laughs) Um, But I don't even think that that's the majority of shows or even like, uh, I don't even think it's like a robust minority of shows. You know, I think most shows want more writers, if anything else. Right. And so I think that was one of the sticking points. And then the other sticking point, I think, was this idea of residuals, which I won't even pretend to understand, you know. But um, the one question I wanted to ask you was this idea of like a white collar strike. Right. And Mm -hmm. what you think here, because. This is something I heard all the time when I was covering the student, graduate student strikes, right? And I heard it from very well-intentioned and very sometimes left people, like not just liberals, right? Which was just like, very quietly, they would say something like, I don't actually care about graduate (laughs) student strikes at UC Berkeley because they're just hanging out, you know? Mm -hmm. And the idea that there's somehow forced laborers is just not something I'm willing to go down with. Now, I disagreed with that point, right? But I do think it was a ubiquitous opinion and uh, for ubiquitous? a lot of people. Pretty ubiquitous, yeah. Yeah, I would say pretty ubiquitous, especially amongst the faculty people I spoke well, to. Well, sure. But... But, <laughs> um, but sure, I think it was very hard to generate a lot of concern because first of all, and this is something we'll talk about with UAW, but like that's what I wanted to ask you. This is a very successful, prolonged, very public, and extremely, let's say, white-collar strike, right? Yeah. Now, of course, there are stories about people not making any money off residuals. There are stories about people who are broke as TV writers, et cetera, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. But like these are high salary individuals for the most part, right? Like very high salary individuals for the most part. And so what do you think about that? Like, what do you think it means that there's like a white collar strike that was this prolonged, this public and this successful? Well, I, I think that w- the reaction that you faced in covering the grad students, like I hear that on blue collar strikes too and minimum wage strikes. Right. So I don't think there's any strike where somebody actually, like there's always these skeptics who are like, basically, if you had the wherewithal to strike, they're questioning your vulnerability right. period. So, right. I mean, I think that definitely exists. Like, of course, for when people look at they're opening up a writer's guild contract and they're seeing that somebody is making $5,000 a week, like that doesn't sound sympathetic. Um, I think, I mean, to my, I guess like the writers that I have talked to through the course of the strike, they talk about the ones that have been in this a lot, a lot longer can talk about how 15, 20 years ago, they would, sure, they would make the 5,000 and they would make it for, let's say 16 weeks on a show or something. Right. And, right. and that would kind of cover them for a while, you know, and then they, because this was always gig work and it kind of always will be this episodic gig work by definition. But now if you're in a mini room and there are like three people and it lasts for four weeks and then you don't get another gig for a year, I mean, you're kind of screwed. So I think that part of it, to the extent people took like a minute to kind of understand that. And of course you kind of like can discount the people who are on like hit shows and have been on hit shows forever because they're like, they're rich, you know, and that's like definitely like a portion of the writer's guild and just will always be. But if we can kind of say, okay, those are exceptions. Like I do think that more people are educated about the fact that white collar isn't white collar, isn't white collar. You know, this is just, it's changed a lot over time and there is gigification in all of this work. Um, Do you think that's so, how the public was seeing this when they were deciding to support it, you know, or do you think they were responding to the idea that while these some TV writers might be well compensated, it is nothing compared to these studio executives who are giving themselves like $50 million salaries a year? I think it's both. I think the Writers Guild was careful around its messaging in terms of that gig aspect and trying to put out more people who are not at the top of this industry, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the summer helped, right? Like the the timing of it is like important because it's, you know, during summer, you're not expecting a ton of new shows and people mm-hmm. like that sort of consumer sacrifice piece was like a little dampened um, outside of like the late night shows and things like that. So, you know, and, and then of course there's just this general, like we've been talking about hot labor summer, like there's all this strike activity, a lot of like favor for unions just because of like wealth polarization. So uh, that stuff benefits white collar workers too, who may right. not have been as sympathetic for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think that skepticism. Yeah. I mean, I wonder about it. I, you know, I think the writers themselves are probably like so exhausted after these 150 days. I mean, I can't imagine, I think they were asked to strike 20 hours a week. And that's kind of what people have been doing. And that's a lot of time. That's like a lot. Week. That's a lot. It's a lot. You have a family. You have other gigs you're trying to put together <laughs> to survive. And you're like in L.A., New York, whatever, yeah, doing that. I mean, inhaling cards, really, really tiring. fumes. Yeah. You know, like those Burbank or something. It's not exactly. easy. Yeah, it's, those it's, first few weeks are always exciting. And then it's just it's really, really hard. So I'm sure they were they were starting to sense that exhaustion moving into the fall. I don't mean to overemphasize this, but, and I will say that I do think that despite the fact that TV writers, I think even most TV writers will also agree, make more money than graduate students, right? (laughs) That I found that there was way more sympathy anecdotally for the, right, for the WGA strike than for, Hmm. um, 
for the TV writers. And I think part of that is because people legitimately hate grad students and don't think they do anything. Right. But I think part of it is also that like, I do think it is the pointing out of somebody even richer (laughs) that is really moving to people, you know? Um, And I think that that's also a tactic that's clearly being used in the other, in the UAW strike, right. Which is just kind of like it's us versus them type of thing. And like, there's really easy ways to draw those lines, even for TV writers. And I think it sort of worked there because I was, I will be honest, I was surprised to learn a lot of those executive salaries, you know, even as somebody who's sort of flirted around in this industry, like, I was like, oh my God, they make that much, Yeah, you know? And that's like where like any type of ambiguity is just like almost annihilated immediately because you're just like, I can't believe that salary for what? You know, right. well, what's um, the statistic? It's like in the mid-century, the, this ratio was like 30 to one and now it's more than 300 to one. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah, so that right. is just like you can't get around that. And I mean, to me, the graduate student distinction is more about like that is just so traditionally thought of as like an apprentice period, as yep. like a non-labor yeah, right. period. That's what I you mean, know? Yeah. So, I mean, that I think it's improved a lot since we saw like the early graduate student and, and adjunct organizing of like 10, 15 years ago. But yeah, sure. That's definitely still a thing. Right. If it, and it would be different, I think, if it was like, for example, if it had been Stanford instead of Cal, you know, because I think that if it was a private, wealthy institution, it would be one thing. But when it's like a public university, it's very hard to play that card. Right. Because like Cal's like kind of broke. <laughs> In some ways, in some ways it's not, you know, but like yeah. they can, they can plead poverty and the common good better than like a Stanford can. Right. Um, it's true. Yeah. Whereas like a TV studio, you're just like, all right, man, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like, like there's no poverty you can claim here. Right. Um, I mean, the Harvard strike looks more like that where it's like, yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. Nothing. right. But then people just think, oh, you're a grad student at Harvard. Well, yeah. So there, I mean, that's the thing. I think, that's I think why that's I think it. this I think discourse right. just yeah. constantly exists. But yeah. I think you're right. But yeah, I think, it's I think for the, sure. I think the issue. grad thing is actually a very specific people hate graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sense more sympathy for them than you do. So, but, you know, really? I think it, oh it's really, God. I think it really depends on I like I think you talk to a lot of graduate students. That well, are. that's for, I mean, yeah, I've been reporting on those campaigns. So they, but yeah, I mean, I think. I'm not saying they're bad Even campaigns as, at all. No, no, no. I know that. But you were talking about hard. public opinion. Yeah, right, I don't right. know. I mean, I I guess I haven't seen the latest polling just in terms of reactions to student organizing. We're now seeing undergrads organized too, which is sort of interesting. Um, but I think the the sympathy overall for unions is so high. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I want to... Yeah, inflecting that stuff too. Right, Hopefully, right. And maybe. it's like, I think that, <laughs> I don't know. I actually think that the grad student protests were probably more popular than I'm giving them credit for being. Oddly, they're part of UAW, right? And that's the second group that we want to talk about, which is, um, Tammy, just give us a capsule on, you know, Monday, September 25th. What's happening with UAW? Sure. Yeah. So UAW, about 150,000 of the auto workers that we're talking about in UAW, as you just noted, Jay, UAW is now like a very broad industrial union that has a ton of white collar workers in different industries as well, including uh, higher education. Um, But out of the 150,000 workers, they started striking about 13,000 workers. um, And now they expanded to a bunch more shops. So now we're talking about almost 40 different plants across 20 states that are on strike from Ford, GM, and Chrysler, which is now called Stellantis. Oh, so Ford has started. 
right? Because that was on the, that was a little bit on the- Ford. Yeah, yeah. So the three shops that they, so this is the first time that UAW has struck against the big three at once. So that's like a very big deal. Um, Ford has been like a little more cooperative, it seems, in negotiations. So as they expanded the number, the rolling strike strategy to three dozen plants, they didn't expand to Ford. So there's only one Ford shop and there's 37 between Uh, GM. Okay, that's what I thought. Anyway, yeah. So that's very like technical, but important. Um, The UAW is making huge pay demands and a bunch of other stuff. The two-tier employment, the division between senior workers and new workers in terms of what they get is a huge priority, as it was for the Teamsters at UPS. Right, right, for UPS, yep. And this is like, I think the, the structural thing that UAW is thinking about is, hey, we had to give up so much during the Great Recession and all you guys got bailed out. Right. And we got nothing. And we're now going to collect on that. We're going to collect on 08 and we're going to collect on the pandemic. All right. So I want to read out their key demands are 36% hourly pay increase, a reduced 32 hour work week and a shift back to traditional pensions, the elimination of compensation tiers, which you were talking about and restoration Mm -hmm. of cost of living adjustments, which all, which apparently are not part of working at, at these places right now. Right. Um, and the other thing I want to ask you about is that this in a lot, and you know, if, if for those who are listening to this podcast, who know all this, I apologize, but we do need to bring a lot of people up to date. A lot of this is because of a new leader that has come into uh, UAW mm-hmm. and that, you know, but yeah, tell us a little bit about the Sean Fain character. Yeah. So last year, um, there was this big campaign to over, to try to get new administration into UAW and, there had been a rule that basically concentrated voting so that like in our electoral system at UAW, it wasn't a one member, one vote really, like who decided who would lead the international union. And then they changed that rule because the past two UAW presidents went to prison for embezzlement. And this union was like incredibly corrupt. In fact, like the freelancers union I've been organizing with, like we disaffiliated from the UAW because it was so disgusting. (laughs) Um, So anyway, so um, then there's been this reform caucus that's been trying to change in UAW and they got elected. So um, under Fain's administration, lots of sort of promises of like left-wing unionism, grassroots unionism, along along the lines of kind of like labor notes type, you know, like reform caucus type stuff. And in fact, a couple of labor notes people are like very high up can you explain the, that a little bit more for people who might not know what that means? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think Jay and I have probably talked about labor notes on this show before, or like what the labor notes left part of unionism means. Like basically it's a form of like democratic unionism that can be kind of skeptical of like entrenched leadership and is trying to push for more democratic organizing within the union so that the union has like internal democracy because unions can be as messed up and corrupt and bad as any other big organization, obviously. So um, basically what we're seeing in the UAW, as we saw in the Teamsters, is like a cleanup operation internally. So people are excited about Fain. He's kind of saying all the right things. He's being way more transparent. Um, By all accounts, the UAW, of course, it's had contract strikes before, but this is apparently the most organized and the most prepared they've ever been. Like, in the last contract strike, workers didn't even know why they were going on strike (laughs) and didn't have warning until like the day before that they were going on strike. So, I mean, (laughs) what kind of union is that? And now there was like a contract campaign. They were doing practice pickets inspired by UPS. Like it's actually like a functioning union. 
is kind of what it seems like under Fane. I mean, he's new, but we'll see. How does that, how does it get resolved so quickly though? You know, like it seems like this is a, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are part of this, right? Um, It is one of the historic and if arguably with the Teamsters, the most important union in the history of unions in a lot of ways, right? And that um, it certainly is the one I think that other than like, let's say coal miners or whatever, is the most emotionally resonant of like, you know, it's what you think about when you think about unions in America is you right. think about the United Auto Workers, right? So how, how do, like, I, I was reading about these changes too. And that was a question that came up to my mind. I don't have the answer, but you know, it's one that popped in my head as a journalist, which was like, yeah, that was fast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> So you're telling me this wildly corrupt institution where people go to jail for embezzlement is now like all, you know, is now all fixed and good. Like, I mean, like, is there any, <laughs> is there, what, what's the reality here? Like, um, I mean, yeah, definitely not. Right. But like, so He's only been in less than, you know, he only got in in the spring. So this is very new. Right. Um, but I think what happens in a like highly structured organization like UAW is like the locals kind of have to, to some extent, listen to the international. So some locals are more with the previous administration and they will try to go against Fain and resist him. Right. But to ones that are either inactive or whose members have gotten activated through the campaigning process of the reformers, it actually can happen somewhat quickly. And also with the strike and with contract talks, like everyone cares about getting something from the contract. So you just kind of fall in line on that piece of it. But no, I mean, I think it's an open question, like how sturdy is Fain's like democratic, you know, what seems to be a democratic like mode of operation going to be. Um, obviously, so much is riding on the strike. Like if he can't get what he's promising to get for people, it's going to be a huge disappointment. Right. That, okay. That's right? my follow up question. There's so much at you, stake. Yeah. Which is that like this guy's super famous now, right? He's the first UAW president that we, that the national media has really paid attention to outside of scandal. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. He is, he has attained a celebrity that maybe somebody like uh, Christian Smalls got, but you know, that was one warehouse, right? Um, we're talking about like a huge union leader now who is in the national spotlight in a way that I can't really quite remember in a long time having somebody mm. being this public of a figure. His rhetoric is great, you know, um, I think, at least for yeah. my taste, so far, right? Or what I sure. believe in, which is like sort of this clear delineation of what is working class, what is management, right? And yet there's still something about the speed with which this has happened that at least like, I would not say that it concerns me in any sort of way, but it certainly makes me think, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So like, what are the, what are the potential, what, like, what are the potential problems that can happen here? Like, is this real? Is this smoke and mirrors? Like what's happening here? Yeah. Well, I think it is real. And I think like the reform campaign in like trying to get him and his slate elected is like essentially campaigning on this confrontation. Like also when O'Brien, the new leader of the Teamsters got elected, like his campaign was about, we're going to really confront UPS, which is why they almost struck there. So um, yeah, it's new and it's fast, but it's also kind of like what the vote was about, you know? And, and so, um, but I think like the, to me, the stakes are like, first of all, is, manufacturing kind of going to be relevant in this country, right? Mm -hmm. So even though UAW is like a lot smaller than it was back in the day when, you know, Walter Reuter was truly was like the, like the symbol of labor in this country, but um, 
nevertheless, like there is still car manufacturing in this country. The big three still are making a shit ton of money. Maybe they're, they're kind of more profitable than ever right now, which is part of why they're going so hard against them. Um, and Biden is trying to say, we're going to bring back manufacturing. We're going to make all this stuff in the United States. And so if UAW kind of can't get what it needs from the companies, like it seems at least symbolically, I think to the public, like, well, then what does this mean for kind of the future of manufacturing in this right. country? Right. Um, and then I think like, to me, the, the, the tricky piece is like the environmental piece. Like you talked about miners, like in some ways, car, like all of these plants are internal combustion, traditional car plants that are making huge gas guzzling, terrible cars. Yeah. Like, Ford you know, F-150 it's very awkward. Is, or not Ford it's like, F-1, but like the, like one of them's like the Dodge Ram. Plant, Definitely. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, they're making those trucks. They're making SUVs. Like the they're making giant huge cars that, that nobody needs. Takes up half and... the road and like basically are the exact height so that you can't see a child crossing <laughs> the street. No, I'm serious. Like, I mean, no, these, I know people like, these have things died. are like the, this kid I went to high school with actually, um, he's become like a columnist for slate or something about, and he, his main things are like, get rid of huge cars. Oh, it's like very convincing, you know, like these things are fucking like it is so yeah. stupid that these cars are this big. And there's no question that the size of these cars is leading to like pedestrian accidents or more car at wrecks and stuff like that. And it's like there's no I like it's just marketing. Right. There's no pragmatic reason why these cars have to be so big. So that what what's the environmental yeah. point of it? Then Yeah. So, I mean, they are big. They're they consume a shit ton of gas. You know, I think the. So when we, we talk about miners like needing a just transition and like we know that they're in a dirty industry, but we don't always talk about car workers that way, but they also are in a dirty industry. And so right. and EV right now is like part of the Biden job, climate jobs agenda, but no EV plants except for this tiny plant in Ohio is organized at all. Right. Um, obviously, like Tesla is famously anti-union, has like busted any attempts there. Um, Hyundai and other people are getting money to come into this country to start making like EV products. And, and those plants um, are not unionized. And those right? plants like, right now like are not union in, at all. There's no Georgia promise Georgia and Alabama. They're all in the, they're all in the American, they're all in the American South, right? And none of them. A are, lot of them are going to right? be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and the question like I had around the Biden subsidies for that stuff is like, why not have some labor tie to that it, labor requirement Got if it. you're going to yeah. like give all that money, but that doesn't exist right now. So anyway, like, I think it's an important moment for UAW because they are both trying to get what they can for workers in the traditional internal combustion plants, which makes sense. But also it's like, are they going to figure out a way to get strong and move toward a future that's cleaner? And we don't know the answer to that. Yeah, we haven't heard much rhetoric about that. And I think in some ways it's like kind of unfortunate because it's not really their fault that the, that, you know, um, that the only unionized shops are the ones that are these sort of old school gigantic cars that they're rolling out. I want to talk about the EV well, thing because yeah. it's they like they have a, to organize them though, you know. So that oh is yeah, on okay, them. so yeah, yeah, that is that's also <laughs> true. It's sort of their job. <laughs> they right? have to go in and do right. it. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things I've noticed living around here is that you know the dominance of Tesla is loosening, right? Um, and oh really? If there's, yeah. If there's a place where you can sort of get a decent bellwether <laughs> for the future yeah. of, it's like the wealthy is part of the Bay Area, right? Um, it makes sense. Almost the EV percentage here is so high, right? Um, and most people I know have at least 
like at the very least they have some sort of hybrid but like most people have an ev that i know you know at this point yeah and so for a while it's only people buying teslas but now people are buying the hyundai like uh ionic No, that's Ionic Kia, right? five. Yeah. yeah, no, no. Leaf is Nissan, right? But that's oh, that's also being purchased, right? Um, people and then people are buying these sort of new companies that are coming out, right? And these are all small companies. I think one of them is based in Vietnam now that is starting to co- that's going to be coming out with cars. Mm-hmm. Lucid is a company, right? That has like a very high performance type EV. I think it has like one of their cars is like a five hundred mile range. Um, Rivian, for example, is another one, right? And my assumption is that none of these shops are organized because they're all new, right? And they're all EV. But even within the, what surprised me about reading about this is even in the traditional car makers, like it's not that they all are UAW if you go work there. It's just like sort of pretty much more localized than that. And that basically none of the new EVs are under this agreement or are part of any of this conversation. And so that does bring up the question like all right you win this contract but like in 10 years are any of these workers going to be working in these plants you know or are they all going to have to switch over to ev and then if they do are these contracts even going to be binding in any type of way you know so like what's 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 the sort of no i think it's really really hard i mean so that i think the discourse right now is the car companies are saying if you get if you are extracting too much from us right now we won't be able to go ev which I feel like is probably like a cynical, obviously, like management line, but also maybe there's something to that. I don't know. And then the, you know, from the union's point of view, they're they're juggling this thing that is always the bane of unions in historic transition moments, which is, are we going to get what we can for the people who are going to be phased out soon? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to like look more towards the future and try to, you know, organize the new shops? And they kind of have to do both. And so I think UAW is saying, let's get strong in our traditional internal combustion plants. And like, you know, that'll that'll be like a boon to the union so that we can go into these other plants. Cause we have to also prove to the EV workers what we're gonna get for these workers. But I mean, the, the truth is like in the same way that we're never gonna need the same number of people doing green jobs as we do in mines, EV plants require far fewer workers. So, you know, they're, they're gonna need to be just transition like jobs right because there's less part, there's folks. less parts in an ev right there's less like, parts part in ev yeah basically it's like battery centered you know right there's um, more automation and maybe yeah. less specialization but like one of the i don't did i tell you about my trip to birmingham alabama no or montgomery alabama i'm sorry montgomery alabama and how there are all these there's like five korean restaurants in one neighborhood <laughs> in montgomery and they're all amazingly good did i tell you about this is it because there is a korean plant yeah there's there? a hyundai so the uh, there's a hyundai the like a uh, plant there and the executives yeah. have to go to alabama all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so i heard what they did oh is they God. took like some restaurants in korea and they I just, was just moved gonna them say, to they imported the chefs and- <laughs> yeah. yeah no i think they just picked up the entire restaurant and moved it over oh you know God. but that's my question is like for Given that a lot of this this issue is almost a di- like as a geographical issue, it seems like like the ones in the yeah. south, the plants in the south are harder to unionize for whatever reason. Yeah, um, right to work states and all the per- political pressure. Right, but what about this idea of like foreign companies? Right, that's what Hyundai, Kia are. Right, they're in Georgia, Alabama. Right, yeah. right now. Um, like how how does like how does a UAW make inroads there, or can they even do that? 
Yeah, they definitely can. And I think like you're pointing out a huge gap that's existed in organizing manufacturing in this country. And also like in, this is something I've been trying to emphasize with Biden subsidies for manufacturing, because we talk about made in America, but made in America in the next generation is going to be made in America, but for a non-American company. Right, right, right. <laughs> but those people are all game to be organized under U.S. labor laws. And so there's no excuse. And I think, yeah, that's going to be something for UAW to have to figure out. What's the um, challenge? Like, why is it harder, do you think? Is it just like they're le- there's less of a culture? They're less receptive? Maybe they're like more prone to using union busting techniques that maybe some other traditional car manufacturers wouldn't do because they're afraid of, you know, their unionized shops. Like, what, what's, what's the added challenge? I think it's really just a question of legacy unionism. You know, UAW, GM, Stellantis, they're used to having UAW in there. Like, of course, they'll resist it in new facilities, but for the most part, they're sort of in this pattern. Anytime you're trying to bust into a new organization, it's very, very tough. Maybe there's a little bit of a psychological thing around like, oh, well, those shops will be will be quicker to offshore. Mm -hmm. But I'm not really sure whether that's true or not. Um. I want to read something from Noam Schreiber in the Times, right? And he wrote a piece about this. It's sort of an opinion-y piece, which I thought was interesting. But he said, uh, there are real pitfalls. He was talking about the strike. A prolonged strike could undermine the three established U.S. automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, and send the politically crucial Midwest into recession. If the union is seen as overreaching uh, or if it settles for a weak deal after a costly stoppage, public support could sour Right now, unions are cool, said Michael Lotito, a lawyer at Littler Mendelssohn, a firm representing management. But unions have a risk of not being very cool if you have a five-month strike in L.A. and an X-month strike in how many other states, he added. Look, we don't have to talk about Michael Lotito here, but like, (laughs) (laughs) which I, look, I get like, you know, you have to put that perspective in there but like <laughs> what what are the other risks yeah. here like what are like just give us a list what are the what do you think are the three biggest risks that are at stake here well so the big the big thing politically is like biden because yeah he has this whole manufacturing agenda he's trying to say democrats are the party of labor and always will be and trying to take them back from you know skeptics who might have been labor people who voted for trump before mm-hmm. and he did actually win back a ton of labor voters in 2020 but yeah, that's like very flimsy, right? So all of the strike activity, like people are kind of looking to what's going to happen and see it as a kind of symbol of what Biden can achieve, whether or not it has to do with him or not. Right. And those states like Michigan, Ohio. Totally. Like, yeah. Like they're kind of important Wisconsin, right now. Pennsylvania. Yeah, Wisconsin, I mean, that's yeah. like the crux of it. All the battleground states kind of are covered by this. So so that's huge. I would say, I guess, like for a number two thing, um, yeah, I mean, I think like the public opinion thing, which is sort of related to the the political piece, though, is is very important. That's why I think the car makers started with just those three shops and are slowly expanding and kind of doing this rolling strategy because they don't know how much public goodwill they're going to continue to have. Oh, you mean you mean the union, not the car makers? The union, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, because yeah, like obviously people were having really hard time getting cars and car parts and all this during the pandemic and stuff. And it's that market is just starting to pick back up. So they want to have the consumer public with them. Um, and I think like, yeah, the offshoring risk is always real. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to know how real yeah. at any given point that is. Um, but, you know, we're mostly talking like in the United States, the 
the biggest car plants, as I understand it, are assembly plants. And then they're getting parts that are actually being made in the United States and abroad and just putting them together at these assembly plants. So that work can be offshore, like fairly yeah. easily. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Or automated, like, right, at some point. Or automated, yeah. right, which is like the trend over, yeah, since right. this industry started. So so th- those would be the things I'm like looking at. And I think the union is really hedging its bets against. Okay. Now, the other thing I want to ask you about is that this this is a wildly popular strike, right? 75%, according to the Gallup poll, support the UAW in this, right? Um, kind of surprising, right? Yeah, why do you think that number is so high? I was surprised. <laughs> 75% is like, I don't know what 75% is, like, you know? People yeah. who like Taylor Swift in this country, maybe that's about it. <laughs> Like, I know, what, seriously. What else is 75%? I have to think it's what you pointed out earlier, which is just the sky high compensation of all the CEOs and their visibility. They're sort of like the classic kind of like, you know, demon like bosses um, in their, you know, high tower buildings and um, the gap between them and the starting wage of these workers, which is like 17 bucks, 17, 18 bucks. I mean, this is not like yeah, a high t- yeah, yeah. pay industry and when you know in a lot of big cities like obviously fast food workers delivery workers are now making more than that so we're not talking about like we're really talking about like working class sort of classically working class wages and so I think people can see that I think also there's some just like a kind of intuitive understanding that this is a symbol of like our manufacturing future and kind of like what it means to make American Um, So they people want these workers to win. It's kind of all I can think. I mean, I don't know. I mean, most, you know, these these plants are concentrated in the Midwest. But if you look at the locations that are now on strike, they're all over the place. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, I still think it's sort of sold, though, as the backbone of America, Rust Belt type of thing, which I think is smart. You know, like, obviously, you need to appeal to some sort of sentimentality. And, you know, it is in a lot of ways, like if. I don't know. You, I was always, yeah. I'm always struck by how basically the only political message now is one of like perpetual American decline, right? Like it's about how like we're fucked and I everything sucks, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And um, like, what is a reasonable response to that? Well, it's just like, well, you can at least have a return to the, you know, even if it's nostalgic or even mm-hmm. if it's short lived, as you said, like, you know, how much longer is, are these com- internal combustion plants really going to exist, right? Like, I mean, even with the giant trucks, right? Like Ford put out like a F- F-150 EV, right? Mm-hmm. It's just as big and stupid as it's the so other bizarre. Ones, you know? Yeah, but now like, I'm like in degrowth mode where I'm like, no one should have a car. <laughs> yeah. But like, um, you know, 10 years or now, it's going to look very different. But it's, I think that it's basically people have a sense, they support it for the same reason that they, you know, just kind of hand wave at the coal miners or whatever, right? Like yeah. this is like a Fair enough, yeah. traditional American industry that people associate with like what they think was the heyday of the country. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps they still feel like there's a way to restore it through unions, which I will say, even if it's not true, is like an amazingly positive thing to have people actually support, right? It's like so it's true. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it, for me, it's interesting because I feel like the, when I hear Fain talk, right? Or when I hear even the WGA people talk, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this was probably something that the Cal graduate students specifically had a hard time with because it's like, you're like kind of yelling at the provost of the University of California. It's like, that's not the same as yelling at like, you know, Lee Iacocca or whatever, right? <laughs> um, 
but or like the head of like some huge studio that's pulling in that has like 300 million dollars just crazy um the discourse of you know us versus them that was from you know occupy or whatever like it just seems to still have a grip on this country in a lot of ways and that you almost have to just set up a place where you point out that somebody's making what most people would think is an obscene amount of money and then just point out some people who make less money than that and then i think like that'll it'll be popular you know which is an amazing (laughs) thing to have happened in this country at this point you know because this country is so like yeah oh anyone who makes a lot of money deserves it right like and everyone who's poor deserves it and it feels like there's like a real shift here at this point i'm so glad i hope that that's true and i i hope i think i'm i know i've been thinking a lot about sorry this is depressing but like the opioid crisis and just like the despair you know like i remember maybe a couple of years ago, you and Andy and I talked about deaths of despair and kind of like people, this sort of new class of people who've been radicalized to the right because they don't see themselves as getting jobs out of high school. Yeah, like Like the Sam Canona's population. Yeah, Yeah. right. Dreamland population, Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, if you talk to UPS and UAW workers, like these are folks who, yeah, out of high school, you can get a job that, okay, maybe you're not rich, but you're making a decent living and you can have a kid and you can rent an apartment and maybe save up for a house. Like, you know, and that has to exist. Like we can't have this just market economy that allows only for people with PhDs or, I mean, and also PhD people aren't getting jobs, but you know, you, you have to have, yeah. yeah, right. Flimsy, like kind of thing where nobody's making anything. Like we want yeah. to have people who are like making things, moving things like that is a really important part of our identity. And I think it's, that's legitimate. So yeah, I'm sure you're right that that's contributing to the popularity of the strike. I know, you know, I talk to people and uh, there's a few people I know who have a pension uh, who are who aren't police officers, but you know, um, the idea is so. How nice. old are they? Pretty old, but yeah. like, uh, or, or and some of them are state employees. You know, I was gonna say my yeah. mom has one, but and like, my dad has one. But yeah, that's like, well, it's just like it's like an idea like that. Something like you know, I know that it's one of their demands, right? Mm-hmm. Like it seems like they're the one shift that I have noticed, and given the popularity of the stuff, is that. Ideas like that, I think 10 years ago, if you discuss them on a place like a national news TV show or in the, or like, you know, in the Times or one of these big places, they would be almost universally seen as being a thing of the past that is impossible now. And actually, it's why all these states are bankrupt and it's why all these right. places are bankrupt, right. which, you know, there's some truth to that, maybe, you know, but now it seems like that we're sort of over like a pension mm, is mm-hmm. death to the free market type of thing. We must always just privatize and do what Milton Friedman says type of thing. And that, yeah. that to me is quite yeah, shedding positive. Scarcity and thinking. that's obviously because yeah. of Bernie. It's because of Occupy, all this type of stuff. And so yeah. my thought is just that as much as the left likes to despair and say that like we lose everything. Mm-hmm. Like these are like real changes of an attitude, an attitude that have taken place over the, that if you were paying attention 10 years ago, that you would have never thought that that was possible. You know, like yeah. attention was like a joke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was like, a, it was like, Oh, so you want to just bankrupt everybody? You're like, sure. Let's do a pension, <laughs> you know? Like, but now it's like an actual demand by the UAW. It's interesting. It's true. Yeah. I think we've shed some of the scarcity thinking, I think coming out of the pandemic workers are also just like, they're like fed up with shit and they're seeing Ford make bajillions of dollars and 
you know, I think it's interesting too with the Republicans because I think they're trying to do this really weird dance right now where like they can't not support the strikes, know. you know, because they're I so know. popular, but they also obviously hate collective bargaining. And so they're saying all kinds of funny things. But I was reading a news analysis. That- uh, did you read J.D. Vance? Like I couldn't even tell if he like supported it or not. He what did like, he say? He was basically like, obviously, I support the workers, but <laughs> and then I was like, and then you read it. It's like totally incoherent. It's like. It's like he's dancing around the question yeah. entirely, you know, and I'm just like, I don't that it's it's interesting to me where it's just like, well, why can't JD Vance just come out in support of the UAW, you know? Yeah. Like, what is preventing him from doing the horseshoe thing that he wants to do? It's and so the bizarre. answers to that are very obvious, but it is like quite interesting to me that he can't quite shake it you know because it's it mm-hmm. would obviously be in his best interest he's politically. in ohio like yeah. that's popular i mean it's right right strange. that's what i mean it'd be so in his best interest yeah. politically to do that but obviously yeah. there are other concerns you know when i asked jd vance about his support for unions the only time i ever talked to him he was like yeah i support unions and then he he automatically and then he straight away insulted the teachers union which right. is like was a kind of hilarious thing, and so I think it's very funny that he can't even support a private sector union. His yeah. strike is insanely popular. It's very weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Teachers unions are one thing, right? Like That's like for, an yeah. easy target. The Republicans for the right, hate them. They can't really. Yeah. Say, um, but like, but it's yeah. Like UAW? UAW seriously. Yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Like... It's in. Yeah, Sean Fain also hasn't endorsed Biden, which is kind of funny. I mean, you know, so he's really trying to extract what he can. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, that is that is uh well Biden, you know, let's talk about the Biden of it all. That is a that is a <laughs> Hollywood phrase that I've tomorrow. heard like five thousand times recently. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, the Biden of it all. Like let's talk about the Biden of it all. Um so what 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 is he doing with all this? Because there's a lot of attention on how he's been handling this. Yeah, for sure. He has been supportive. You know, I think he's not trying to criticize the car companies too, too much. Tomorrow, he's going to show up at a picket line, he said, on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, he's supposed to make a speech in Michigan that will, you know, he's obviously strategically in Michigan. And I think is at the same time as the Republican debate. Yeah. So he's trying to, you know, really present himself as being. Oh, wait, there's another the, Republican the day, debate tomorrow. I think it's on Wednesday. Oh, my God. Um, so, you know, Biden's both trying to counter that, the steam of that, and also say, hey, I'm in Michigan with these workers. Uh-huh. So I think he seems to be doing it right. I mean, you know, obvious. I, I can guess that the UAW will endorse him and try to get their people out for him. <laughs> right. It's him or Trump, right? Like, those are the two choices I mean, at this point. So yeah. um, even in those states, I think it would be difficult. The last question totally. in this NPR-ish interview that I'm doing, I feel like we're doing... I know. Uh, you should talk... <laughs> No, no, this is good, actually. I, I, I like, I don't, the, I was thinking about this show and I was like, I think the best thing to do would be that people rely on your expertise to get up to date and, or at least to know what's happening around the main pressure points about this. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you was just like, what do you think about this whole idea about the strength of the labor market being why all of this is possible? You know, I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate. I think left it, a lot of online leftists are being really annoying about this, honestly, <laughs> because they just want to be so doomerish at all times, you know, that they can't 
really admit a very basic economic <laughs> fact, which is that, you know, <laughs> we can never be happy. Yeah. You can't just say one thing is good. Therefore, this other good thing is happening. <laughs> you have to be like, no, actually, that good thing that is happening is all a lie. And this whole this other thing just mysteriously happened. It's like, come oh on, guys. God. You know, like this doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. Like how, what? Like what? What do you think about that argument? I know. Like, some, of course, that's yeah. relevant. Yeah. Okay, but good, that can't yeah. explain it. That right. doesn't explain the whole thing, you know, and there's also counterbalance to that. Like, I don't know, inflation's really high. Like, there's all these things that are, you know, going on right now that, I don't know, both like make workers stronger and make workers like very anxious. So, you know, I think there's an accumulation of things that we're seeing here, some of which you identified just as like even going back to Occupy and this kind of reevaluation of our wealth gap in this country. Um, I still think like we are, we have no, not enough distance from the pandemic to see its full impact on workers thinking, workers risk-taking behavior, like all of that I think is relevant to this. Yeah. You know, on the show, I've even talked in the past about how I just think that unionizing Silicon Valley workers is like a joke. It's like never, ever going to happen. <laughs> but I don't know. I've actually started to rethink that, right? I don't think it will happen, you know, but the popularity Where the union of, might be different, you know? Would, right, like, right, right. The way the right. Alphabet Workers Union is functioning is not yeah. the way UAW functions. Right. And I'm just saying the yeah. idea of young people yeah. in those areas wanting to be part of some sort of la organized labor movement, right? Mm -hmm. um, it does seem like that type of language translates, even if it is people making $300,000 being mad at the people making <laughs> $700 million, you know, like it's, it's true. That, that's like a sizable gap. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and, and those guys are like, why are we making technology that's like assisting ice, you know, like killing the environment, creating AI so that all of our friends lose their jobs? Like right. they're because I think they're at the crux of so many of these technologies. I don't know. The most thoughtful of them are also like, what the hell? Yeah. And I think people are I think there's a misconception of who tech workers are generally, you know, like there's too many of them for them to all be like people who are all libertarians who hate the homeless. There are mm -hmm. certainly those types, you know, but a lot of them are just people who got computer science degrees and, you know, want to go surfing and are always at the spots where I go surfing and I see them and they're not, mm -hmm. you know, they're nice people. You know, mm -hmm. I used to have this thing where I would see them. I'd be like, Ugh. But like <laughs> I don't know. I think that was when I was better at surfing. Now that I'm so bad and out of, I'm, I'm so bad That's and out hilarious. of shape, I almost feel bad being mad at anyone out there. <laughs> you know, just like, you know, 10 years ago when I was like, you know, when I could actually was somewhat confident, not good, but at least confident, you know, I think I could be a little bit more judgy, but now I'm just like, yeah, we're all out here sharing the waves because I suck. <laughs> oh my God. I want to wait. So how are you, this is unrelated, but on the surfing topic, like you got in a bunch of practice in Hawaii this summer, right? So do you yeah. feel back up to No, speak? no, okay. no. I'm like at 10% of, <laughs> like literally 10% of when I was surfing a lot. Part of that mm -hmm. is old age. I was going to say. And part of that is cool. just, you know, it takes, I weigh 35 pounds more now than I did back then. I was very skinny back then. And um, it's hard to lug around all that extra weight, but it's also just like, I think it's age and yeah. Um, and then also, I used to go every day, and now I go once That's a amazing. once or t at most twice a week, which is still yeah. a lot, by the way. I know. You know? I'm but, surprised um, you go that often. But it's hard to get there. It takes me all day. I mean, I have to drive yeah. all the way to San Francisco, 
Last week, I, I went see. with my friend from high school. Like, I have a friend out here who I've known since we were 12. And um, he and I go surfing. And Aww, I bring cute. all of our stuff. And we drove all the way to Ocean Beach, which took 50 minutes. And then it was crazy there. We couldn't go in because it was much, much bigger than I thought it was going to be. So then we drove yeah. down 25 minutes to this little town south of Daly City called Pacifica where they have like kind of a beginner's beach. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we had done all this driving and then I opened the car and I'd forgotten our wetsuits. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's like two hours of driving and I Holy forgot shit. our wetsuits. Oh my god. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, we you didn't want to just rent them? We or? rented them, yeah. Yeah, okay. Was, I was like, was, you drove too far. Yeah, That's was, hysterical. We had driven way too far and I was like, I can't. Oh my god. So I yeah, it's that. hard, but um, why are we talking about surfing? I don't remember. Oh, because um, yeah, you were talking about the Silicon Valley. Oh yeah, people. yeah, yeah. The Silicon <laughs> Valley people—they're nice people. A lot of them are nice people. I don't know. I get this. Like they're—they—they they, have—they have some really shitty people representing them, similar to journalists. You know, like they have some real shit. <laughs> it's heads true. Representing. There us. are so many. There's a lot of radicals in tech. You know, who like. Oh yeah, or, yeah, yeah. You know the tech utopianism, blah blah blah. But also just people who like that. Those are the jobs they take. Those jobs. I feel like in our Discord we have so many tech radicals. I know. Well, that's partially <laughs> what also makes me. Th- yeah. You know, it makes like, me hopeful. Yeah, it's people have. All, you have to have a job. You know, at some point. Um, and around here, that's like a pretty good job. Yeah. To get. Uh, yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about in this? We're right at an hour. No, I think we're good. Um, um, yeah, we'll have a big update soon, I guess. We'll yeah, I think something. we should do. We should just keep following this, and uh, you know, congratulations to WGA. It's awesome, really. It is. I mean, it's yeah. like I, I thought they were going to go into next year. That's at least that's what I've heard. I had heard oh, from man. a lot of people, you know, but it was like 145 days, and people felt a lot of pain. I'm sure, but like, no, it's cool. I want to. Um, the fact that they come up with some sort of resolution at all is amazing. I can't wait to see the summary. How far apart it seemed like they were. I know. know, I know. Um, it's going to be a few weeks, I guess, because on Tuesday they'll let us. Yeah, they'll release the summaries, right? And then. Yeah, yeah. I think last time I think it, they did it quickly, but mm-hmm. a lot of people I spoke to think it'll be. Some people said it'll be very quickly, and then some people said it'll be a month. You know, yeah, but yeah. Um, I don't know what the truth is because they got to get the full membership vote. Yeah. And all my sources are like, they're like very, they're good. I just say like, they have, have they have incentives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're hoping one yeah, thing yeah. or the other. I mean, no. That no, that's way. true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Well, Tammy, thanks for doing this um, and uh, lending your expertise to the show. <laughs> All right, until next week, I'll see you. See you later.